So the majority of development instruments, for example, are created with an expectation of risk assessment. And that risk assessment will almost, by definition, expect that in a developing country, you are exposed to much more risk, whether you're a foreign direct investor, whether you are an aid worker. And these sorts of parts of the development system or tools of the development system are clearly tools that need to be rethought and redesigned because COVID-19 is showing that actually that is a poor assessment of developing countries. And that could actually be a reason why developing countries stay developing because they're never ever given that sort of equal time of day in a sense. Welcome back to the Rethinking Development Podcast. My name is Safa and I will be your host as we speak with and learn from practitioners of all backgrounds and affiliations around the world. In our conversations, we aim to rethink ethical behavior and best practices through the lived experiences and personal reflections of different practitioners. Our guest today is Hannah Ryder. Hannah is currently the CEO of Development Reimagined, a pioneering international development consultancy firm and the first Kenyan wholly foreign-owned enterprise in Beijing. Development Reimagined has built a niche in providing strategic advice and practical support to African, Chinese, and international stakeholders on issues ranging from the Belt and Road Initiative to Africa's growth markets, green growth, and China's foreign aid. Hannah also sits on the executive board of the British Chamber of Commerce in China and has played various advisory roles for the UN. In 2006, she co-authored the stern review of the economics of climate change. Hannah is an economist by training, a former diplomat, and has close to 20 years of experience. Hannah, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure to join you. Thank you so much for that introduction. To start off, could you share some of the influential moments or experiences you had in the early years of your life that kind of sparked your interest in working in diplomacy and later in international development? I think the, I think the starting point is definitely where I was born in Kenya, being brought up in a developing country, the majority of the world is in developing countries, of course, for people who are wondering about what is the shape of the world going to be, a key question is how to help improve the situation for poorer countries. And my family uh, lived in, in Nairobi, but we would go often to the rural areas to go and see my grandparents who lived at the bottom of Mount Kenya, uh, where there was no running water, there was no electricity. And so I got an understanding of extreme poverty to some degree, but also an understanding of the inequalities in a country like Kenya. Then at the age of 10, my parents decided that our family should move to the UK in order for us, my sisters and I, to have a better education. And again, that was interesting eye-opener to, again, that challenge of how do you provide the key requirements for children and even on education and health-wise, how do you help people to get that equal access all across the world? Those are the kind of very, very early 
experiences. But uh, once I was in the UK, I think we would regularly travel back to Kenya. I enjoyed traveling in different countries. I also became an economist. And one of the reasons I became an economist was because I was interested in the rest of the world and how the world operated. I initially really very much loved macroeconomics, eventually loved microeconomics too, but it was a macroeconomics of why do different countries have different growth paths, which really fascinated me. And I think that's been the reason why I've stuck with development issues all the way through. Mm-hmm. As you say, you, you became an economist and some of your earlier professional experiences was working as an economist for the Department of Trade in the UK and later as a team leader at the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. In those positions, in those work experiences, when it came to applying an economic lens to global climate change issues or even other issues, what were some of the maybe challenges or ethical issues you faced in the process of facilitating negotiations or providing financial strategic advice and navigating both the economic aspect of it, but also the political context? Well, I think there's two things that really struck me in those positions, especially working in government on international issues. The first was that When I first wanted to go into the UK government for working, of course, as an international development practitioner, what did I want to do? I wanted to go into the international development department. For various reasons, I was on this fast stream scheme, which was sort of bright young things going into government. They placed me into the Department of Environment. And my initial feeling was, oh, I'm so disappointed by this. But actually, what I realized was that any topic, whether it's agriculture, whether it's environment issues, the biggest challenges are with regards to the foreign implications or the overseas implications of those policies. And in addition, it got this perspective, which I've maintained. And one of the key perspectives that we have, even through my consultancy, is that aid is not the only answer to development, or it's just one aspect of the toolbox in development. And so what I ended up doing in those positions was to try to help find a bridge between UK government policy and the domestic priorities and also what the international perspectives were and the developing country perspectives on those issues. Um, And that was particularly important for climate change, where at the time there were some very challenging negotiations and there's still very challenging negotiations on climate change. But that international perspective from a developing country was something which was very important to integrate into the position. And so that was something I felt that I could really add value with. The second aspect that I I found very important to recognize, especially in international discussions, and, and particularly when I was involved in climate change negotiation, and I think this applies to a lot of UN settings, from what I have seen and discussed also with others who work in the UN, is there is a huge disparity in terms of the capacity of developing countries to be able to even develop the kinds of positions that are required in order to have an effective negotiation. And typically, for example, when you see this in a very physical way, 
you'll have the negotiating teams from countries like the UK or from the US or even Brazil and China being much larger than negotiating teams from developing countries, yet the countries that are being most affected for which climate change is an absolute present threat are those poorest and smallest countries in the world. And that always struck me as a real challenge and drove me to try to find ways to improve that situation. And these are all motivations, of course, for creating the consultancy that that I run at the moment. Very interesting. You mentioned the disparity and the challenges around that aspect. At that time, you were one of the youngest negotiators in climate change talks as representing the UK team. What were your experiences with how younger voices are heard or maybe not heard or how much support they're given in terms of maybe leading or sharing their ideas or was there still kind of a hierarchy when it came to negotiations at the multilateral level? Yeah, it was a very interesting experience and I have to say that the majority of my team were very accommodating and the key thing for the UK team certainly and also then eventually the negotiators that I used to work with was how much do you know but I think that was part of the challenge that I had to very much prove myself I had to really know my topic in a great deal of depth and to show that I had value added and of course that was challenging in a negotiating environment where I mean it's not only age I was also surrounded particularly by men there were a lot of potential reasons that voices might not be heard. But I think I personally did manage to overcome some of that, but I I don't think it was easy. It wasn't easy at all. And it still remains difficult, I think. The voices of not just young people, but also women, of people who are from developing countries, Africans uh, in particular, it's hard to make sure that that voice can come to the forefront. Mm-hmm. So later on, you you transitioned to working at the Department for International Development. How was your experience there? And in terms of building partnerships or working with other partners and collaborators, what were some of the observations you had around building trust or the kind of power dynamics that exist between different countries, different partners? Of course, getting into the Department for International Development eventually after six years in in the civil service by then and working on international issues. It was certainly a dream and I was really happy to be there and I definitely uh, really enjoyed the work that I did there. What, What was most enjoyable about it was the UK, certainly at the time and the department itself, has such a strong reputation for being a thought leader on a whole range of development issues. And that was great to be part of that club, as it were, and also to be able to be given the space. Eventually, I think, you know, there's obviously with every organization, there's a process of assimilation and coming into that space to be given the space to be creative and and find, bring forward ideas for new projects and so on. I think the key observation I had, though, at the time and Again, I would I would say that these things are still challenges for DFID and also many other OECD donors to take into account. And, and as I've also worked in China, also for Chinese aid to take into account is how do you bring the voice and the need? How do you make sure that the needs 
in developing countries are at the absolute forefront of your design of policy. And it doesn't mean just, you know, going and doing a survey. It doesn't mean just listening and talking to some NGOs or speaking to some government partners. And when you're designing the proposal, it means finding a way to integrate those people in that process and even thinking about ideas and commissioning ideas. That, I I believe, still remains a huge challenge. This idea of and what's known in development as country ownership or local ownership is a huge challenge and we definitely haven't got there. And I think working in DFID was definitely my first foray into seeing just how difficult that was to, to make happen. And later, you kind of began to focus on issues related to China and relationships with China. What sparked that shift in focus? Well, actually, while I was in DFID, one of my roles was to be helping the Secretary of State, actually, the minister at the time, development minister at the time, to co-chair something called the Global Partnership for Effective Development Cooperation. That's a very long word. But what that organization was, was a platform for exactly the sorts of conversations that we're having, brainstorming and, and trying to find a framework for key challenges with the way that development is done. So whether it's things like local ownership or whether it's, for example, transparency, how transparent aid flows, these were big agendas which were being discussed under that specific platform. And so while I was doing that post, and I have to say, I'd personally been interested in China for a long time because I had seen when I was going back to Kenya and also then when I was working on climate change issues, doesn't sound quite right, but we did travel a lot uh, while I worked on climate change issues. I did come across and see that China was having this huge impact in all of these different countries that I was going to. And I would always you know, ask questions. Do you know about this road? Do you know why this decision was taken? Do you know about these new buildings that were being built with Chinese contractors or so many different questions about Chinese aid and support? for the countries I was in, but very few stakeholders, as I realized, actually understood or had access to that information about how China worked. So that piqued my interest. And I thought, you know, there's something here, there's something which doesn't seem to be working. And then uh, in this global partnership, one of the key questions was how is China involved and how much is China also going to be at the multilateral level also engaging on discussions of how can China make its aid more effective? How can China be more transparent? How can China prioritize the same things other donors are aiming to prioritize? So there was that discussion happening. And through that, I became much more interested in speaking to and getting to know some Chinese counterparts and the kinds of challenges they were facing in the work and constraints that they were facing in their work. I felt that it would be really worthwhile. I felt that any person working in international development, if you don't know much about China and about how China works, then there's something you're missing. And that's why I felt that it was really important to have at least some experience of working in China. And yes, here I am five plus years later, still working on Chinese Development Corporation. Can you tell us what led to the idea for Development Reimagined and also the story behind the name and the work that you're focused on and you're committed to facilitating and leading? Well, after being in DFID, I had the opportunity to get a role in China, working in the UN, UN Development Program, China Office, which is a 
fairly large office and was really quite unique at the time because it was one of the first offices in China to have two prongs. One prong was focusing on domestic poverty reduction challenges in China, uh, which was the historic work of the UN in China and course, typically is the work of the UN in most developing countries. But then it had this special section, which was about China's South-South Corporation or China's Global Corporation. And that was the unit that I then headed up. It was a fantastic job. What was really interesting as well for me was moving from a position of uh, representing the UK government and, you know, still trying to have a very progressive and positive open foreign policy perspective within that UK point of view. But then shifting to having a UN voice and being somebody that's representing all member states, and in particular, the majority of member states which are developing countries, that was very interesting and, and quite a major shift. And I really enjoyed that voice, actually. But then I left. I mean, so why? Part of the reason I did was, well, there's two reasons. One, the UN is a fantastic organization in principle and amazing individuals working there. But the challenges of delivery are very huge. You have to go through so many approval processes and so on. And of course, I was used to that. I used to work as a government economist. I used to work in government. But the bureaucracy at the UN was even more challenging and of course, also more political because you're dealing with a huge number of member states who might have a potential interest or conflict of interest as well. So I I wanted to work faster. Basically, that was the first reason. The second reason was I was also very surprised by the financial constraints that the UN was under. I think, you know, everybody knows it's constantly talked about. And even at the moment, you know, with the discussions about the World Health Organization, the funding being cut, etc. We know these things in principle, the UN always needs more money. But I think being in, especially at senior management level, to be really part of those conversations and about how to stretch resources and prioritize resources. I was also struck that that was a real constraint on the organization. And so that's why I then thought, is there another way of delivering the kinds of support that I want to provide as an individual, as an international development practitioner, somebody really committed to trying to improve the world? Is there another way? And that's when I started to speak to a number of other consultants in this space, other people who had also specifically worked on Africa-China cooperation as well, and was also realizing that actually there was a need for the private sector. And there was a huge kind of groundswell of the development community also accepting that the private sector is really important for development, both in terms of finding solutions and also carrying out those solutions. So I felt that that would be a really interesting move. And in China, of course, would also be doubly interesting because China is also seen as a very important place for business and for engagement of people from other developing countries and developing nations themselves. How difficult would it be to set something like this up from China? But the need was really there. There was a very, very strong need. There is no other international development consultancy like ours in China. And majority of international development consultancies do not have an office in China. So I kind of had this idea. And here we are several years later. Wonderful. And in terms of deciding to name it Development Reimagined? Good question. Development reimagined. Well, 
I'd always felt that in international development, we are consistently coming up with very similar solutions to the same issues, but we are not addressing those issues. And so I wanted the name of the consultancy to kind of help people think immediately that what we are going to be helping you with is actually reimagining, is thinking differently and not thinking linearly about development. The sorts of points I, I mentioned earlier, things like aid is one of the tools, but not the only answer to development. When we think about development, we can find results through all sorts of different different means. And that's why I felt that this was the right kind of title for, for the company. When you hear it, it literally brings that idea to you and people who are engaging us uh, to work with them will be doing that because they do want to find solutions. That was my feeling. Those are the people that I really wanted to work with. Those are the clients that I really wanted to build. The other point is being in China as well. The company also had to have a Chinese name. Finding a Chinese name for your business or even if you want to have a personal Chinese name which I do as well, is not a simple task. And so I went through a whole set of different potential names, development refreshed, development rethought, and eventually found development reimagined, which actually aligned with the Chinese name, which is Xin, and it means to think originally and to think forward at the same time. So it kind of also incorporated that sense in the Chinese side. Speaking about the work you do fostering relationships between China and Africa, sometimes the narratives that we hear concerning maybe China is that there are cases where maybe the treatment is not fair or there are stories around stereotypes or stories around racism. You know, sometimes on the podcast, we speak about the power of words and the power of stories and the power of certain narratives dominating not just media, but a landscape within a sector or organizations strategically using dominant narratives for their own intentions. So what have been your experiences with trying to establish new narratives around different African countries as partners and also China as a partner? Well, this is really at the forefront of my mind at the moment, especially because of COVID-19. I think there are lots of aspects of our world um, and of our personal life too, but also of the way the world works, which COVID-19 is exposing, uh, you know, are seriously vulnerable and are not necessarily built the way that they should be. I think one of the key issues that I am really aware of, I think maybe I'll mention too, the first one is around African debt and in general for debt for developing countries. This has been an area that I have actually been asked to work on quite a lot and my team has worked on quite a lot in the past in terms of thinking about why are countries in debt with China? Is that good? Is it bad? You know, these sorts of normative questions. Those sorts of questions do come up all of the time. And one of the things I've tried to emphasize is that when those questions are asked, often they're coming from a perspective that isn't a perspective of need. If you think about the majority of developing countries, a country like Kenya or Ghana, 
or you know, even in much more fragile situations, Somalia, Ethiopia, etc. These countries, they need infrastructure, they need some kind of extra finance from external partners to help. And debt can be one of those means of getting that help. It shouldn't always be seen as something which is bad. Uh, we don't see debt as bad in our personal life. So why would we do that at the country level? I think that is something which the world is still grappling with. And I constantly come across people who inherently think going into debt is bad, yet at the same time, they still want and think that we need to achieve the sustainable development goals and, you know, we need to have better transport. Well, you know, how do we do that? Are we going to do that through foreign direct investment? Oh, no, that's going to be falling and that might not be working. Okay, well, so... Uh, can we do it through taxes, domestic taxes? No, there's not enough people paying tax in country. Well, then where is the answer? I think that's one of the narratives which I have really felt we need to look closely at and reimagine and rethink uh, in order to come to a better solution and find some better answers. And I think that's one of the key vulnerabilities which is being exposed right now through COVID 19 is this question on debt. The other vulnerable or the perspective that feels very challenging is this perspective, which was expressed quite early on when COVID-19 was about to hit the African continent, is that African countries are absolutely going to be overwhelmed and that their health systems and generally that their governance systems are really behind the rest of the world. That doesn't only extend to African countries, but I think there's this feeling that you know, poorer countries will always suffer and they will always do the worst compared to developed economies. And I think COVID-19 has really turned that on its head. But at the same time, that narrative is very difficult to break out of when you come to actual development instruments. So the majority of development instruments, for example, are created with an expectation of risk assessment. And that risk assessment will almost by definition expect that in a developing country, you are exposed to much more risk, full stop, whether you're a foreign direct investor, whether you are an aid worker. And these sorts of parts of the development system or tools of the development system are clearly tools that need to be rethought and redesigned because COVID-19 is showing that actually that is a poor assessment of developing countries. And that could actually be a reason why developing countries stay developing because they're never, ever given that sort of equal time of day, in a sense, even through our development lens. There's definitely a great deal of introspection that we need to have for development. But you've spoken about the perspective that within the toolbox of sustainable development, there's more options than just aid and the role of the private sector. So in terms of working with businesses, advising businesses or the experiences you've had around South-South cooperation and the private sector, what have you found to be the strengths of their role, their participation, and also maybe the limitations or some of the more complicated or ethical issues that come up when trying to collaborate with businesses? Well, I think the key strength of businesses is that they want to move fast and that when they see an opportunity, they want to get to that opportunity as quickly as they can. And for example, even just my own consultancy, we really try to work 
very fast. We deliver quickly, much faster than any other organization deliver because we have an incentive to, you know, there's a contract which is involved. So, and we always want to say yes, effectively. But at the same time as, you know, you asked about what are the challenges with that? Well, when it comes to development, of course, we definitely need to be working fast. But the private sector can also get very stuck into certain types of business models. And the private sector itself can be very difficult to disrupt. So an example would be the private sector being very used to selling real estate and and looking at real estate or looking at offices and thinking that this is how it works. Then there's a disruption, which is co-working spaces and that changes the way that people do work and that is a new type of business model we've seen it happen in so many different settings how can the private sector help to disrupt the international development business model and the ways of doing things that I think we still haven't got to grips with and I still think we haven't brought that kind of open thinking to the international development sector And even when the international development sector works with the private sector, it's very much working on issues like the agri-processing or even when the private sector is brought in to help on trade is typically around trying to reduce barriers to trade. Well, those might not be the answers. They might actually be some other ways of working um, where we can get the private sector to do even better than it's doing right now. And so I think Even though private sector does work fast, there's also the challenge, I think, is it can be a little bit lazy as international development practitioners are not pushing the private sector to think differently and to disrupt. Then it's easy to get lazy and and provide lazy solutions. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the different cultural expectations or the different approaches to doing business from a Chinese perspective versus a country in the African region, what have been your experiences with kind of negotiating those expectations or those, you know, assumptions around this is how we do things and this is what we think is the right way to do things and at the same time having to also adapt and work with the expectations of partners? Yeah. Well, I think certainly working in the private sector now, that is always a key question. We're a private sector organization which is focused on sustainable development. It's fundamental to the work that we do and the clients that we try to find and the clients that we work for. we, We want them also to be focused on sustainable development and poverty reduction. At the same time, part of our role is also to help them see where they can become more focused on sustainable development, to bring those ideas to them. It can be challenging because we've had clients, for example, one of our one of the values that we try to bring in, for example, is any research that we do for a client, we usually want to put that out into the public, for instance. We want that to be shared with others. We think that if they're asking questions about international development that are relevant to international development, then that public good element is going to be there. But we do find, for example, clients that don't want to do that, or we have to kind of find a way that they can. So we might do two different versions of a report, one for internal use and one for external use, these sorts of things. And then when it comes to actually delivering programs on the ground, I think there again, what we try to do is 
find ways of of bringing in that local perspective, the on the ground perspective, much more to the forefront. And I think every single organisation struggles with that, and every single development organisation in particular struggles with it. But that's understanding where your clients are coming from, understanding where you know, the ultimate beneficiaries are coming from and bringing that need to the forefront is really key. When we're working with Chinese clients in particular, one of the key challenges that other consultants had said to me right at the beginning before development reimagine was even uh, registered was oh, Chinese clients, they often don't want consultancy work, you know. And that does happen. For example, we are regularly approached by Chinese companies who would like to go and perhaps invest in an African country or explore whether there is a market for their product in an African country. And they will come to us, we'll do a proposal for them, and then we'll find that they have been able to be introduced to that country by another Chinese firm that's operating there or another Chinese partner. But at the same time, that that approach is shifting because those companies themselves are realizing that what they really need is that that introduction wasn't enough in order to be able to integrate. And I think this is a challenge that most international development organizations, private sector or public sector, have realized that you must have a much stronger knowledge of what your market is, of, of your intended beneficiaries that is really worth investing in in order for you to be able to do something really positive and make a profit too, but definitely to do something positive. So we're seeing more coming. That part of of our work is building more and more, but it certainly has been a struggle. And it's been interesting seeing the Chinese companies and stakeholders realize the value of that extra perspective that we can bring because we have that network into developing countries, we have that network into the African countries, and we can bring that information to them, you know, quickly, but also in an easy, easy to digest way. Your experiences have spanned a, a variety of different uh, sectors. For example, you've had experiences with working with government, with UNDP, in consultancies, with businesses. In that whole ecosystem, how do you see the role of the different actors? You touched on the financial constraints that some UN agencies feel, and for example, President Trump's withdrawal from WHO and these kind of situations. How do you see maybe the role of one or the other growing or diminishing, or how do you see them working together maybe in the future or the interaction amongst them in the years to come? Well, I think there's going to be a lot more space for much more collaboration. And I think definitely the private sector will be more and more to the forefront because while COVID-19 has demonstrated the ability of governments to really take the wrong and the right decisions when it comes to their citizens and their economies, they can't do that without the engagement of individuals. They can't do that without the engagement of the private sector, informal or formal. And so I think in addition, partly because of the constraints on public funds and also on the UN system, the role of foreign direct investment will also rise going forwards. I think those are all opportunities. They don't have to be seen as a positive or negative. I think we have to be willing to engage 
and be willing to see how can we make those stakeholders, how can we help those stakeholders to be as positive as possible and to have the poorest people, those who, who have very little at the forefront of their minds in, in what they're doing. I think that's going to be the biggest challenge. And whether it's the UN, whether it's donor organizations, I think the UN and bilateral donors will most likely be taking a smaller role. I mean, bilateral donors have been taking a shrinking role. Aid has been rising, but the actual uh, results which are generated through aid are becoming much more dependent on their engagement with other stakeholders like the private sector or or non-government organisations. I think those trends will only accelerate going forwards, but we can shape them. I think there's, there's real potential to shape them. We just have to be very intentional about it. And I think that's one of the one of the key points that we say when we work with governments, African governments in particular, with all of these stakeholders, you need to be much more intentional. It comes back to the point that I mentioned right at the beginning about the capacity of developing countries, that capacity to engage and plan, be strategic. That capacity really needs to improve and really strengthen. I hope it will. Throughout your different experiences, Uh, Have there been times where you felt particularly maybe discouraged or just questioned the state of affairs? And of course, with Development Reimagined, it's a fresh perspective or your contribution to overcoming some of those challenges. But are there trends that you continue to see that maybe discourage you or you you worry about? Well, of course, on on a personal level, running a business is both challenging and rewarding at the same time. And doing that for international development and having a mission makes those emotions even stronger. But at the same time, kind of looking more broadly, the sorts of trends that I see that worry me are the trends which are very much around the status quo. What we're seeing not just through COVID-19, but in particular through COVID-19, but also these real challenges to multilateralism coming from the US and also coming from China's role, how to address those, how open can we be, can the international system be to rethinking and redesigning some of those structures? There are some days where I am hopeful that that can happen. There's many days when I'm very, I'm very worried that we will continue with these structures that are effectively not delivering the world that we need. And what we're doing is just tinkering at the edges. I really do worry about that a lot. But, you know, the time will come when we have to work on it. I hope it will be sooner rather than later. And especially to address things like climate change. I mean, we are, we're just not doing that in the right way yet despite you know 2006 we had a very clear message of the economic cost of inaction will be much larger than the economic cost of action but even so that message is still not going through not just to governments but also to the private sector as well so there's so much for us to do but I still feel privileged to be able to think about it every day and to be able to work on these issues. And whenever I'm asked to write a think piece or, you know, get my team to be writing policy briefs on these issues, I feel very privileged to be able to do that and to lead those kinds of conversations and ultimately to to make that happen in practice. I still have hope. I'm a very glass half full person. My husband will tell you that. But nevertheless, yes, I do. I do feel worried. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, I understand. And hopefully there will continue to be positive developments and changes, especially with development reimagined. You know, we wish you continued success and thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure to talk to you and, and I hope together we can continue to rethink and reimagine development. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's been really great to listen to your thoughts and reflections. And I also want to thank our listeners. To keep up with our latest episodes, you can listen to us on your preferred podcast provider and follow us on social media to join in on the conversation. I look forward to continuing similar conversations with you all next time. Until then, take care.